You know, as Peter said, what we have seen so far is about 1045, and I was once again tempted just to cut it right here. Um, so we're at about a level 10 right now in a preacher. All you might be able to do is bring it down a level here because God has been so good to us this morning. And I want to hit the idea of seeing a sermon is more vital than hearing one any day. And so we heard testimonies of two. We heard testimonies of Christina and Ellen. Now I want just a quick testimony of the church. There's many of us here that know these two young ladies. If you, like me, have seen the evidence of a risen Savior, the power of the Spirit that is alive and well, and changing lives still today, 2012, in Akron, Ohio, I want to see some applause and say amen. As a living testimony that Jesus is alive and well, he is not done, he is not finished. If you don't know them well, I highly suggest you get to know these young ladies. They will encourage you, and they will show you Christ. You know, as I was putting the thoughts down, I kind of had an idea that we were going to, you know, take a little longer this morning, and I had all these verses written down and all this stuff, and all right, all right, went to all my speaking classes, and I went to all my notes, I got to cut, got to cut, got to cut, and then I remembered what a, you know, just an intelligent and attentive group this is, and I thought, you know what, God put it on my heart, we're going to go through it, so I'm warning you uh, that we are still going to use them. And then I actually looked around, I saw all of our visitors, and it really looks like a really, really super intelligent group of visitors. So I'm really excited that you're going to be able to hang in here with us today. So we are, by God's grace, we are going to move. We are going to go in his word. If you take notes, if you'd like to go along, let's do that. But because the gap for who God really is and his truth is so high and the ability of the servant is so low, you mind just praying with me one more time? Father God, we do come to you one more time. We ask, Lord, in confidence and just abject hope and belief that the words and the language that we have, Lord, will not lower the vision of who you really are. That the thoughts that we convey, Lord, will be from you and they will not give a lesser version and a lesser vision of your glory and of your sovereignty and of your truth. Lord, we ask that you perform the miracle that you said you will, that when we come together, You will take the words, Lord, and they will be your words, and they will be implanted in our hearts exactly as we need, and then you will perfect them by your spirit so that we can see you, so that we can know you, that we can walk away with a vision of who you are, and we can walk away, Lord, changed by you, because we don't believe this is an exercise in futility. We believe this is an exercise in reality and hope, and we come to you boldly, therefore. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 73. Turn with me. We're in our... Continuing review of the Psalms. I always forget this. I always forget to ask what page it's on. So who's ever got the page number in Psalm 73 in the Bibles? uh, Just shout it out. 485. Thank you. While you're getting ready, let me give you just a little context. Most people in this life will disagree on just about everything. You get a couple people in a room, the one thing you can for sure agree is that you're going to disagree on about any approach to anything. But there is pretty much one thing 
that you get anybody together. I don't care what you are, what country, what uh, political persuasion, age. The one thing that most people could agree on, and we have summits and conferences and all kinds of things, is that things are not really right. This world is not really as it should be. It should be better. We look around and go, we're capable of so much more. So whatever, how we would think we should get there, the one thing we would agree is, there's got to be more than this. And then we look at the pain and the suffering and go, surely this is not how it is intended and supposed to be. The amount of suffering, and let's take it further, the amount of evil that exists in this world. I don't care if we go to Joseph Stalin or Jerry Sandusky. What we are hearing and what we think about and what is on the news, we go, ugh. We close our eyes. We almost want to put over our, I can't even stand it. I can't even believe it. That's why a lot of times our hearts, it's probably not as bad as that. They're probably embellishing it, you know, just for ratings. Because it's hard, that, that kind of evil Think about the children that died in camps. Think about Holocaust. Think about children that were, Lord, I can't go there. I maybe just watch a 30-minute little cartoon tonight just to make something light and levity because that, that's too much. That's heavy. How do we deal with it? You know, and how the ones who sometimes are the most evil or put the suffering, how they seem to have it okay, right? You know, the really bad boss who's just beating on everybody, but yet profits are up, so they get the big bonus, and the other people, and some people are cut and fired, and there's a bigger bonus because there's more profit because less people doing more. Bought a bigger boat. Yeah, wait a minute, how does this work? Yeah, I think even in the movies, they give us this picture of, you know, I remember one time I was watching, is you, 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 is how, how many mafia movies have been made, right? You know, like a hundred. And the one thing that seems to be a lot of them, I was wondering, you see these guys are like a hundred years old, and they all have oxygen, and they're all like, fine, everyone around them is dying, you know, all their underlings, but they're like, got oxygen at a hundred years, I said, how do they keep living? You know, they're, they're, they're fine, they didn't even have oxygen, they're so old. Yeah. And the, the writer that we have today deals with this struggle. How can it be this injustice that we see? How do we reconcile a world that is apparent injustice, where the evil seem to prosper, where the wicked move on ahead, where those who are trying to do right are often stepped on and destroyed. And if you will, God's people are in captivity. They're in bondage. They're persecuted. They're stolen from. They're beaten down, persecuted, reviled, turned, exhausted. And the world says rightfully. And the believers say sometimes the same thing. Then where is your God? With all of this injustice, where is your God? If he exists at all, is a claim of the unbelieving world often. He is either not all loving or he's either not all powerful. Because surely an all-loving and all-powerful God would deal with this mess. 
and would give his children a rightful heir, his righteous ones. Israel, or the disciples, or everything that we would see with children and others. Where is your God? And sometimes we don't admit this in church, right? Because we have a little bit of that little piousness that just comes with you know, reality of life. Yeah. Well, I don't think that way as a believer. I would recommend that we all think through this. It's not an affront to God to not think through it. I would say it's more an affront not to, you know, to not think through it. God wants us to think, where is our God when there is so much injustice? And the believers at times walking through life, seeing this every day after day after day, can get to a point and say, where is my God? I believe, but Lord, I need help. Help my unbelief. The writer Asaph is exactly writing this. In the third book of the Psalms, Psalms broken up into five books, starting in the third book. We are going to expound on this as we read it. We're going to jump ahead in the New Testament, so I will try to get through this fairly quickly. Follow along with me. Verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. How does he start? doesn't sound like he's starting with this mess. We're going to get to the mess right next. You know what he starts with? The remnant of his faith. You ever done this before? You ever been somewhere and go, okay, I can do it. Yeah, I, I know I can do this. And really deep down, you're, why are you saying that? Because I'm not really sure I can do this. You know, uh, the reason I'm saying this so often, you've said that like nine times, I know. You know, we all know you're, I'm saying it because I'm struggling with my own belief. What we are seeing here from the writer, he puts first and foremost right out there, kind of like he's writing it on a billboard. He's, 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 he's pinning it on the refrigerator, if you will. And he's saying this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I'm saying this because everything that follows is going to be my proof that I'm not so sure that that is true. So I'm going to start with the tangled, ripped apart, shredded faith that I have left. And I'm going to put it on a refrigerator, if you will. And I'm going to share. I'm going to share a little more. And he shares truly. And isn't God good that he lets us record the hearts of the believers from all ages so we can see, you know, the things that we might be embarrassed to write, God lets other people write so we can go, yeah, I, 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 I did all that. I heck with that. Verse 2. But as for me, let's get personal here. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's he saying in verse 2 and 3? He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my grip. I'm losing my grip. I'm, I'm, I'm tripping, I'm stumbling, I'm falling all over. And in hindsight, he can see that it was almost as if he had lost it. Yeah, it didn't matter how much he's hanging on by, he was hanging on. And if you will, we'll get to this, God was hanging on to him is, really, is the reality here. But the grip, you ever feel like that? You ever feel like sometimes the grip is a little weak? The reality of life, this is the reality and we're going to deal with it. He jumps ahead now like a great attorney. Because he admits his arrogance and his enviousness here and his frustration at the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes, I'm not just going to say this. Just in case you want to go, really, is that true or not true? I'm going to make a case for it. So he's literally making a case to God and making a case to anyone that's going to listen to his complaint. And he goes on in his complaint here. Let's go through verse 12. These wicked and evil people, for they have no pangs until death. They don't have pain. 
They don't have suffering. Things are going well for them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have all the food they need, all the best foods. They have all the exercise equipment. They have everything they want. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble, as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They can just walk around arrogant. They can put, if you will, a necklace of pride on. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Go ahead, speak back to me. Watch what I'm going to do with you. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Can you picture that? What a visual that is, a tongue just strutting through the earth. God has given us this picture of what their words are like. They're not afraid. They have all the power and they have the abilities. Therefore, his people turn back from them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Friends, the reality as we look sideways, there's a lot of the same stuff going on. There's a lot of people that we would say, oh, you can't keep that up. You're going to get your due. And then five years later, oh, you just wait. They can't keep that up. They're going to get their due. And then 37 years later, oh, you just wait. They can't keep that up. They're going to get their due. And then they're retiring in the sun. We're like, oh, they're not getting their due. They're just getting. How is this? How does this work? Asaph is saying, the world that I'm living in, that's what was happening. And I'm proposing that the world we're living in is still happening. So how are we going to reconcile these things? Asaph gets us a little further into his heart. He opens up for us. We get to be the psychologist on a couch while he's spilling this all out. Behold, these are the wicked. They always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Just getting at some big statements here. And I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. I am stricken and I am rebuked. So the stricken may be the physical or the emotional pains that come in. The rebuked, the things, the little things, if you will, comparatively that I've done wrong, I get the discipline. I get the hand of God. I get the knock it off. I get the, if you will, the divine spanking. So I'm stricken over here. I'm rebuked over here. And I'm trying to do all right. And it's all in vain because over here, they're not getting any of it. And I'm confused. The writer here is admitting, if I'm admitting it, I'm confused. Help me. How do we put this together? stricken and confused if I had said I will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children verse 16 but when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task so those of you that know me I, I, I do like to think things through at times but I totally get this you know, you, know, you can raise your hand if you want here yeah, but you can do it emotionally verse 16 how many of us can echo this you know, but when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Hey, let's go home tonight. Let's figure all this out. 
uh, let's watch the ball game instead because this is like exhausting. It really is, right? This is like heavy stuff. How am I going to figure this out? It doesn't seem like anyone's figured it out, right? And thousands of years ago, they haven't figured it out. No one's figured it out. That's exhausting. Can we just go do something? Can we, you know, who wants to play euchre? I don't know. Let's do something. You know, let's, and that's the reality. We're tired. It's hard. And this is what he's saying here. I, by the way, I had a laugh when I, so I get a little laughing on here. I'm like, that's kind of funny. You know, he's tired. He, he can't figure this out. I'm exhausted. But then something changes. Until. You love it when the Bible puts in things like but and, and, and until. The until, the, this is a great until. Until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Something changes here. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Then them is this wicked and the evil, the others, if you will. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes O lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms 17 he had had a glimpse he had had a revelation in the presence of god in the sanctuary of god when he went into communion and into fellowship with god god had chose to reveal to him what would happen truly and in the future. He said to Asaph, what's going to happen is you will see. Let me show it to you that there is destruction coming. There is an end. And if when I wake up the way I put it to you, they are, feet, their feet are on a slippery slope and they will come down. Asaph saw that. He had the revelation, the revealing of God's truth. And then how does he finish? It changes his life changes him when my soul was embittered when i was pricked in heart i was brutish and ignorant i was like a beast toward you saying this is the common before i was so stubborn i was frustrated i was angry i was bitter it's true lord i was fighting you because it's not fair it's not fair it's not fair but nevertheless i'm continually with you now i get it you hold my right hand When I'd almost slipped, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Before, earlier, he was desiring what everybody else had. Now, his heart and the vision has changed, desiring only God and only his presence. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything else may fail, I may fail, but you are the strength of my heart. For behold... Those who are far from you shall perish. They will. You can put will. This is now a confident speaking. I get it now. I've seen the future. They will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. This is not wishy-washy language now. This is not a, hope, a, a kind of a, um, a weak hope. This is a confident knowledge of hope is revealed. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your good works. What changed for Asaph? What changed for him is the revelation and the knowledge of what is actually and truly going to come. That this life He stopped looking sideways and he started looking, if you will, up. That this life, in the moments that we live, 
Because Asaph died and all of this didn't exactly happen. Not yet. But he knew that. He knew it didn't have to be the not yet. That means just the not now. Not, not no, just the not now. He was echoing what Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. He said it this way. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. This is one of the most amazing statements in Scripture. We are of all people most to be pitied. If this is all that it is, and the wicked can win in this life for moments and times, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, then your faith is in vain. It would be worthless and futile. It would be silly and ridiculous to live and to follow Christ for that. You will lose and be worthless. And Asaph says, because some people like to say, well, it's at least a good philosophy. It's a good theology. At least, you know, he did good things. At least if I still follow Christ this way in this life and do good things and live good, it'll be worth it. No, it won't be worth it. It won't be worth it at all. That'd be a silly philosophy. It is either Lord God Almighty who is completely just and righteous, who will rule and put all things right, or that falsehood and things that are unjust will win. That is not who we follow. We follow a righteous and a just God. There must be more. So now we're going to slide in to the New Testament. What did God reveal that changed Asaph's tune? I wrote it down for myself, and I'm going to repeat it for you again. Understanding God's plan. This is a key point. Understanding God's revealed truth. We are confused people. We are far from God. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can't get to him unless what? He reveals himself, and he reveals things to us. And by God's grace, he has revealed things to people. And he has preserved them so we can know what he revealed in Psalm 73. We put chapters around him. We put verses around him. That's us doing it. But it is God revealing and preserving so we can know what he thinks. And we know what he thinks about today and the future todays, the tomorrow. And he's not done revealing. He is revealing the restoration and the righteousness and complete future justice. That's what Asaph knew. So let's bring it to us today, right? Is there times where we're confused? We have despair. We look around. Like it's, do we feel like Asaph? I'm not going to go over, all over it again. But can I, I want some interaction here. Is that a true statement or not? Yeah, you feel that way? Like, it's just not working out. Is God all loving? Is God all powerful? Is he going to do what, he, what I thought I heard in Sunday school or I thought I read? Maybe I misinterpreted it. Is he going to do this? What can change our despair? The answer is knowing God's revelation. Knowing what God said and knowing it for ourselves. Not good enough that the person next to us knows it or the person in the other aisle or the person in the other cubicle at work or standing on the line next to us. Not good enough in the other desk at school. We got to know it. 
We've got to know it. Asaph, it didn't matter if someone else would have told him that. He would have still been, yeah, it's not true. Everybody's winning. He, God had to reveal it to him. And I'm going to say a statement here that was really hit powerful with me. We say, okay, God revealed it to Asaph. He went into communion with him. I believe that God has significantly revealed more to us here today than he had revealed to Asaph. So what God revealed to Asaph and was enough for his faith to turn his life around, God has revealed a whole lot more. A revealed New Testament through a revealed God himself who came down in person, who lived among us, who died and rose again. Not just a prophetic word. We can look backwards now and see that the prophecies were fulfilled. We can see him documented. We can see historically, archaeologically, and we see his, his word revealed. And we have an entire book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ written by St. John, which is basically a little bit of what Asaph had just blown up into an entire book. Let me show you what happens in the end. And just for good measure, Jesus threw it in in Matthew and Paul threw it in in 1 Thessalonians and we just threw it in and in and in and we're going to hit a little bit because we can't just walk away from here today going, all right, maybe I'll study it. Maybe I'll get through a few key passages that give me confidence in the revelation of God and justice that is coming. We need to take a look at it ourselves. So just to warn you, there's going to be seven passages I want you to look up. Start Luke 1, 31 through 33. If you go to your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to be in your third book of the New Testament. It's the third gospel, Dr. Luke who's known to be very, very meticulous, like a good doctor would be, writing things down, keeping records. And he tells us what happens to the Virgin Mary. Here's one of the things. This is the things we need to know. The revealing word of God that is true, that we need to live our life by, that will change the way we live today. A couple verses in chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So this is the prophecy given about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to Mary, the virgin who is going to bear him, Father God's son. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be God. And the Lord God will give to him, get this, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We gloss over those things. You know why? Because we read fast and we go forward. What is he saying here? We kind of get the idea that God rules in heaven, right? That God is there and everything's okay. He is saying here that this Jesus who comes, he's going to come through you. Later we're going to get to his death and all of these going to go away. But the end of Jesus is he will sit on David's throne. He will sit on this earthly throne and he will reign, his kingdom will reign on this earth forever. The new heaven and the new earth. God will make things right on this earth eventually forever. And this will be his reign. We go ahead. What did they, when Jesus Christ left after Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, by the way, if you get to the Gospels, you get to Acts. You go John and Acts, just go two books to the right. Acts chapter 1 is when the church goes. Christ here is going up into heaven. He's going back up to be with God for the period of time where he's left his church to begin and to grow and to share and to testify of him as we did this morning through baptism and Ellen's testimony. So they ask him a question because the disciples knew what was all written in Isaiah and what was all written about this kingdom is a kingdom that is here. It is a kingdom that is here. So they ask him this question. So when they had come together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord... Speaking to Jesus, will you at this time, will you right now 
restore the kingdom to Israel. We know you're going to restore it. We know you're going to bring it right. Is it right now? Are you going to do it now? Because you've been resurrected. And here's his answer. He said to them, it is not for you to know when, basically. The times or seasons that the Father has fixed for his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He did not say if. Well, if the king, he said, you know, it's not for you to know when. The implication is, I'm going to do what you said. It's not right now, but it's not for you to know when. If it's a month from now, a year from now, a thousand years from now, I will restore this kingdom. But don't worry about that right now. You've got a job to do. So the disciples were expecting it. Mary was prophesied to it. And we keep going. What did Jesus himself, turn with me just a little further, Luke, back into Luke actually, 16. Jesus, while he was on this earth, was teaching on justice. And he was teaching on ultimate justice. There is a story of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm not going to expound much on these now. I'm just going to read them because they basically speak for themselves. Follow along with me as we read some of God's revealed word, starting in 19. And people say, well, Jesus didn't talk about heaven and hell. Pay attention. This is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, remember the wicked and the rich and all this kind of stuff here? And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, just the scraps. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Can you hear Asaph saying, that's what the kind of stuff I'm talking about. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. The dogs are coming up to him and he can't even get the scraps. Seriously. Show me justice. The poor man died. He didn't get any justice in this life. He died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, the intermediate heaven. We don't have time to expound on all this, but trust me, that's the intermediate heaven. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, another word for hell. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So he's seeing these, they have this physicality, the ability to see. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that what you did in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. God remembered everything that happened, by the way, everything. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, even if I wanted to do something, between us is fixed this great chasm, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is a fixed eternal chasm. And he said, then I beg you, Father. Interesting how we know who our Father is now, don't we? To send him to my earthly father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them all of a sudden he has some generosity of heart because he knows the terror and the pain that he's in lest they also come to this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses they have the prophets they have the revealed word they have all that they need let them hear them they have what Asaph has 
But Abraham said, and he said, the rich man, no father, from the dead they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither they will be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The thing I want us to take away here is Jesus himself is talking about heaven and hell. He's talking now in this life about eternal righteousness and eternal justice. There will be a moment, and here's the thing that he's really hitting home, right up until the moment that you die. Let's just assume the rich man had a heart attack, all right? That's an easy way because he had a lot to eat and he was probably a big guy. You know, he had a lot. Let's just say he had a heart attack. Up until the moment of the heart attack, he was winning. Right after, it was gone forever. Right after, immediately, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he's in hell. Forever, fixed. What we do in this life, while we have life, to the moment of death, fixes our eternity forever. A vapor fixes a billion, 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 billion years. Start easier to handle a little bit of the issues when you know that this is what fixes that. Up until that moment, the rich man, if you will, had his opportunity. The moment of death fixes it. And Christ was speaking on this. All right, Matthew 5.5. 5. Turn with me. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We all, many of us know the Sermon on the Mount, the confession, if you will, of Christianity. We actually hit one of the verses last week, 5.6. 5, 5, six with this idea of thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's my little token to last week, so we can just you know, draw some things together. Go up just a verse. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Think about that for a second. We just like to read some of these. I'm going to go through quickly. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus Christ, that's good news, isn't that, right? Man, we got an amen up front here. All right, I love it. Yeah, left side is going to have to kick in a little bit here. Inherit the earth. We sometimes think, well, there might be some generic justice, some kind of figmentary putting it right in some far, far away heaven with a disembodied spirit floating around without maybe pain. It's not like, it's not some gray heaven that is kind of a little bit better. It's the meek shall inherit this earth. Spoken from Jesus. This is the prophecy to Mary. This is what the disciples were looking for. We're going to hear a little bit more here. The beaten, the poor man, the dogs taken, you know, licking off the sores, when people are stealing from us, when things are not right, something we deserve is taken from us, we suffer injustice, when children are beaten and abused, when we wonder, Lord, how is this going to be put right? He says, I am a redeemer. I am a restorer. I'm a God of justice. And the meek, the broken, the persecuted, they will inherit the earth. So every word here is really powerful, right? We have Father God. If our Father owned everything and we were going to get the inheritance, 
we would say sometimes, well, that didn't go so well with me. I tried this little business deal, and it didn't go so well, and I put a nickel over here, and I lost a dime. Oh, no. He says, but it's okay, because your father owns the whole world, and you are going to inherit it all. The meek shall inherit this earth, ultimately and finally. Turn with me to Revelation. Now we've got to jump ahead to the last book in the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to go towards the end of the last book, Revelation 19. While we're turning there, a little context for Revelation. This church, now after Acts had happened and after the word had went out and the spirit of God had spread and many, many people came to Christ. And if you want to do some history here and see the amazing boon of Christianity right after Christ's death and resurrection Watch the most violent persecution that has almost ever been seen on the face of this earth. Christians burned. The Roman emperors, the Caesars. You had a struggling church that's coming to faith in Jesus Christ, persecuted. They call it the dispersion, fleeing out, leaving their homelands, going anywhere they could find safe haven. And you have this brutalized, destroyed church sitting there clinging to their faith like Asaph, going, Lord, when is your justice going to come? When are you going to restore it? When are you going to make things right? When is the sickness going to go away and the pain going to go away? And he says, I'm going to write you a love letter. I even took away your pastor, John. I put him on the Isle of Patmos. Now you even lost your pastor. That's how bad things are getting. You're on your own. I'm going to write you a love letter. I'm going to further reveal to you what is going to happen to encourage you in the moment. I'm going to give you the future so you can live today. Revelation 19, verse 11. The rider on the white horse, when Jesus left, This is the picture. There's one time where Jesus is going to come back. He hasn't come back yet, but he's going to. This is when Jesus comes back. And John was given the vision. He was told to record it so that you and I could sit here and read it today and that our lives could be changed. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. This is Jesus sitting on the white horse. In righteousness, he judges. Judges, that's make judgment, to make things right, to bring justice And he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Get this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. All God's righteous, just anger that he's been storing up against evil and wickedness in all places is going to come with a vengeance, and it's going to come with Christ. He has come first as our Savior and our Redeemer, He's coming again as a judge and as a king. Revelation 20. You've heard maybe the statement, the great white throne judgment, skipping ahead a bit. What happens? 
at the end, there is a judgment where God takes everybody and he judges righteously. A couple verses, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Get this, if you'd like to underline, this is a good one. According to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This basically, in summary, it's saying that we're going to be judged. We can choose. Right now, we can choose how we want to be judged. Do we want to be judged through Christ, through his perfect righteousness? Can we be justified in him? And have our names written in the Lamb's, Jesus' is the Lamb's book of life, and say, listen, or do you want to go it solo and go, why don't you take a look at everything that I've done, and why don't you uh, judge me righteously? We can have an option. Brothers and sisters and friends, we had two young ladies said today, I'm going to step, I'm going to be, <laughs> I'd like my name in that book, you can judge me according to Christ. And then the world is saying, where is your God? He's either not all-loving or he's not all-powerful. I've had it my way my entire life. Even the church sometimes says it's true. You seem like you're winning. I'll take my chances. And God said he's going to judge everybody. And even one thing, one thing found, God cannot be in the presence of anything. And the reality is for all of us, the depth, the wickedness, the, the jealousies, the selfish, it's, it's, it's going to be brutal. And God is going to judge it. It's just not right now. And in our last part, Revelation 21, this is, to me, a bit of the climax that we need to really grab a hold on. The new heaven and the new earth. This is what our hearts are screaming for. This is when we talk about relationship with God, sometimes we talk about that like some kind of philosophical thing It's talking about a life here on this earth, walking with the creator sovereign who made all of this. And God left us with this vision so that we wouldn't miss it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son and daughter. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Heaven and hell are realities. And ultimate justice will be that all sin, all pain, all suffering that God has allowed in this life for a moment, while he's bringing his children in, he's allowed Satan, the prince of this era, to have a playground for a time. But we've been given the end, friends. We were just given the end of the book. We ruined the ending, which is good because we need it. Because without knowing the ending in this book, we're going to go, it's not worth it. Paul said it, it's not worth it. Unless you know the end, it wouldn't be worth it if we don't win in the end. When he says we are more than conquerors, we are victors today. We stand in victory today. Judgment has just not been meted out yet. We stand in victory today. And friends, we need to know this. We are so tempted. Here's our second point, right? The first one is we need to know knowledge. Knowledge. We cannot replace studying God's revealed word. If we wonder why our faith is struggling, why our faith is shaken, and we're tossed about every side, we don't know what he's revealed. When he revealed his good word, Asaph settled down. His anxious heart settled down. My heart can settle down. The church that God gave his revelation to through John could settle down. God is going. When we look around and go, this is not right. He says, I know. I'm going to fix it. Remember how it was in the Garden of Eden? Before choice and free will screwed it all up. He goes, I got a plan. I'm going to make it that way again. So when you walk around, and we have glimpses every once in a while, when everything feels good for the moment, there's love in our life, and the kids are obeying, and the food is just right, and the wine is just so, it's all great. That's God's little glimpse of how it's going to be forever. Amen. Forever. We're not supposed to run away from those things. He gave them for us to enjoy. He goes, I'm giving you a taste when no one's going to come. The waiter's not going to come and spill something on you. Going to put somebody else's stuff on your bill. Your credit card not going through. And then you got fired the next day. And I know I hate Mondays. There's never going to be a Monday, if you will. If I can have some grace here, it's always going to be the weekend. And we've already won. And he wants us to know this. 